Hello again, everybody, and welcome into Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Subscribe to our feed, of course, new episodes Mondays on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also find us up at nationalreview.com. Click on the Podcasts tab and find all our old episodes, including our most recent uh, tribute to the uh, the work and, and life of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, which uh, which had a lot of listens from what I can see. So uh, that's up there, too. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And my co-host, as always, standing by is Jeff Blair. Jeff. Hey, how are you? I'm just sitting here with a guitar cradled across my knee, a bottle of Value Right Vodka, and a case of Green Belt beer. Kind of getting myself in the mood. <laughs> you can find Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD is where to find him on Twitter. And we welcome our guest to this edition of Political Beats. Uh, he is a senior writer at the Weekly Standard. Find him uh, on Twitter, at Heminator, H-E-M-I-N-A-T-O-R, and his work also at weeklystandard.com. He is Mr. Mark Hemingway. Mark, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for joining us on uh, the podcast, and thank you for your band idea as well. Again, we, we talk with political people here on the show, but not about politics at all, unless it's band politics, not real politics. <laughs> uh, and we talk about uh, favorite music and the favorite bands of people who are involved and in working in or commenting on or analyzing or reporting on politics. And we'll talk about Mark's band in just a moment. But first, we present to you, Mark, the question, what is your political beats, and what is your job, and how did you get into this whole political rigmarole? Huh. That's a good question. Uh, so I don't really have like a particular political beat. I'm, I'm sort of fortunate in, in that regard. I'm a, I'm a senior writer at the Weekly Standard, so that means that I have you know some basic flexibility in terms of the things that I want to cover. But you know, I cover everything from like you know nuts and bolts electoral politics to you know I actually do a lot of you know cultural writing uh, from time to time. Uh, I've you know I've written pieces on Chris Cornell and uh, Chris Cornell's death and Tom Petty's death just in the last year, for instance. So it's nice to have that sort of flexibility in addition to politics. And um, I'm actually working on a story right now. I'm kind of excited about hopefully it'll come out uh soon i, I gotta nail down some uh, uh logistics but i'm doing a piece uh, on ken schaefer the guy that invented the uh, wireless guitar signal transmitter huh. who i believe it or not has played a really interesting role in u.s russia relations so hopefully we'll find out more about that soon <laughs> it's like finding out as jeff and i did recently you know jeff skunk baxter from the dewey brothers is some sort of nuclear Defense arms contractor expert. or the yeah, Hedy did. lamar invented like coding technology yeah. technology in world war ii <laughs> So, yeah, no, I, I have a friend who works for a French satellite company here in town. He's a, he's a lobbyist, and they, they had some banquet, like, honoring Jeff Skunk Baxter for his contribution <laughs> to, like, you know, aerospace stuff. Yeah. And I remember as part of the award that they were giving him, they went to this uh, James Trusser who makes these, like, custom aluminum guitars or whatever and made him, you know, this, this you know, telecast that looks like, you know, a piece of aircraft aluminum or something like that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he really is, like, a big figure in, like, yeah. the aerospace. It's crazy. Um, and uh, Mark, as we uh, all our guests do, of course, uh, point out to, to band they love, his music has helped shape their lives. And for Mark, we talk about uh, uh, generally referred to as the one of the best bands that just never made it big for a number of reasons, which we'll get into through the course of the podcast. <laughs> Let um, us count the ways. Yes, from the rich, rich uh, Minneapolis music scene of the uh, of the late seventies early 1980s and continues to be rich to this day in fact uh they are uh, uh they are one of the more beloved and in, in, in some cases one of the more hated uh for various reasons too bands of that era as well it is uh paul westerberg and the replacements the replacements are band this week with mark hemingway mark we turn the floor to you 
to tell us about how you found the replacements, what their music means to you. <laughs> well, you know, see, it's interesting with the replacements because I, I'm not a necessarily a young man anymore, but even I was sort of, you know, John come lately in terms of the replacements. I mean, they put out their last record, I think, when I was a freshman in high school. But even by then, you know, this is 1990, mind you, you know, we're a year away from um, the grunge revolution. I was living in Pacific Northwest at the time, actually. So it was a big deal for, for me then, even before uh, Nevermind came out. But, um, uh, they were just one of these bands. Again, even by 1990, they're on like the verge of breaking up, not even like ever really a mainstream factor where like you could not get away with discussing uh, basically uh, uh, an emerging American rock and roll band without people in some way, shape or form, like invoking the replacements or comparing them to the replacements. I mean, that's kind of the strangle they hold and sort of the sort of rock critic imagination, certainly. And But they were also um, not just sort of a critical darling. I mean, they really were like a cult band as well. Mm -hmm. um, they, they had like just really, really rabid fans. Um, so um, they were really inescapable when I was growing up. Um, but, you know, how I discovered the replacements is, is kind of a whole nother story uh, in the sense that, um, uh, like I said, every time I opened up a magazine, you know, some rock critic or someone was comparing, you know, some band to the replacements. And I finally had decided to get my, my hands on, on the replacements, but it was, wasn't easy to find. You know, I grew up in Bend, Oregon, four hours outside of you know, <laughs> Portland, Oregon. Um, you know, we had uh, basically like a Sam Goody in the mall and like a record store slash head shop downtown, and they were both small. And I remember like being like super excited one day when after school I found a... Um, a copy of a cassette copy of Don't Tell a Soul in the bargain basement uh, <laughs> um, at uh, Fred Meyer, which is kind of a regional Pacific Northwest department store thing. Um, and, I, and I took it home and I listened to it and it was kind of fascinating because I was sort of instantly smitten by the replacements. But the thing about that record, Don't Tell a Soul, is on one hand, it's kind of overproduced 80s dreck. Mm -hmm. Everyone sort of acknowledges it's the replacement's worst record. But even then, the songwriting is like so good um, that it's it's sort of undeniable. I mean, you know, I was sort of immediately smitten with the lyrics. just something about the replacements you know even when they were like they tried to heavily produce them like it, it, everything is it, but you know the phrase casual brilliance mm -hmm. i mean you know it, it like brilliance has never been so casual basically as, as with the replacements i mean it's kind of a sort of a, a ramshackle brilliance it's like everything they did was one big happy accident it just it just sounded right in a way that like you didn't expect um and it was really unusual because they're not otherwise a, a an experimental or a crazy rock band I mean, a lot of what they did was sort of straight ahead you know early on bluesy punk rock and roll and then later on you know some more sort of more conventional songwriting but somehow there was something about them that was just sort of they had a quality that that no one else had for me when i was of course i'm a younger generation than, than you at least a little bit and so for me, the replacements did not exist in my consciousness uh, for my early years of high school, certainly not in middle school. They broke up as a band when I was 10 years old. So, you know, at that point, what was I doing? I was listening to Phil Collins and Madonna. Um, you know, if I was listening to anything at all, it was that and, you know, my dad's old music videos and, you know, like getting into Bob Dylan a little bit and the Beatles. Um, it was the release of a compilation album, of all things, compilation album. See, they do serve a purpose, at least they used to, uh, called 
all for nothing, nothing for all. It was 1997, so I would have been 16, 17 years old. Um, high school, junior year, senior year of high school. And, of course, I had started reading, like, the Rolling Stone record guides, and it was really kind of plunging into, like, music. And, of course, when you do that, and at least if you're wired like me, you go consume music criticism. You look at what people are saying. Back then, the internet didn't exist, so it was all in print. Mm -hmm. And there was this band that kept coming up as a name. The Replacements, The Replacements, The Replacements. I knew literally nothing about them. And then when I went back to get the, you know, the albums, the compilations al albums, I would find that this was indeed truly a band that I had never heard before because none of that stuff was played on the radio, at least where I live. Just complete strangers to me, ghosts. I picked up All for Nothing and Nothing for All. This is a two-CD set. First disc is just the greatest hits, so to speak, from their Warner Brothers, their major label era. Second disc is a bunch of weird outtakes. Um, and initially, I was not entirely impressed. More than about half of it was from those last two albums, which may have been part of the reason. Wasn't initially drawn to that. But there were two songs that absolutely blew the top off of my head. One of them was uh, Can't Hardly Wait, which even as a 16-year-old, come on, if you can't like that song, then there's something wrong with your heart. And then the other one, the one that really, really floored me, was a song that I still to this day believe to be maybe the best song The Replacements have ever written or recorded called Bastards of Young. thought to myself well if they can do this i gotta go back and find out what the rest of their stuff is like so i hunted down these really old original cd copies of like let it be hootenanny the replacement stink i paid 19 dollars for a 15 minute ep <laughs> i bought them all and then of course i started listening to them and gosh i have semi mixed feelings about this band but i ended up getting all of their music and then getting all the reissues um the thing about the replacements that bothers me is that I both love this band and I hate this band, all right? I love this band because at their best, and their best is truly transcendent. They could hit peaks. They could hit resonances. Uh, Paul Westerberg was a songwriter, and the rest of the guys behind him were so electrifying as, a, as a, an instrumental ensemble. They could transport you to an emotional place that nobody else in the 1980s ever seemed to be capable of doing. I love R.E.M. We did an episode on R.E.M. It, it went two hours. That's how much I love them. Um, R.E.M. never hit the kind of raw emotional levels that The Replacements did. Uh, on songs like Bastards of Young or Here Comes a Regular or I Will Dare. R.E.M. never told me what it felt like to be an awkward teenager mm -hmm. or an adolescent college student the way the replacements were capable of doing in their music. So I love them. And then I also hate them. And I hate them because in a weird way, you can only hate somebody that you love when you feel that they've completely sabotaged their own talent and they failed to live up to what they could have done. And of course, this is the true story um, and maybe kind of the overdone story, but it cannot be ignored of the replacements that every opportunity they were ever given to prove themselves to be great. They sabotaged. 
they intentionally pissed all over. They they pushed away everybody who tried to help them. Every even semi reasonable compromise mm -hmm. they were ever asked to make to further their careers, they seemed to just toss into the trash can. Behaved like terrible people, descended into substance abuse, even while still just cranking out magnificent music all the way really through to the end of their careers. I love them, and yet there's a part of me that actually still feels as perverse as it might sound for me, a guy who got into them years after they had broken up, angry at them, <laughs> angry at them for frittering away, for squandering the talent that they had for no good reason. They could have done it. They could have done it. And maybe they couldn't have done it. Maybe there's just something about the people they were, the way they were raised, the backgrounds they came from that made that impossible. But it feels like just a few reasonably easy-to-make smart choices here, there, various points in their careers, and they could have been even bigger than R.E.M. And they weren't. And now they're a cult band, and I'm glad that that music is out there and exists, and we're going to talk about it. But it, it still chafes me. I'm a sucker for, you know, a never was kind of story, and the replacements are uh, a great never was kind of story. Badfinger is another rock and roll horror story in terms of guys with immense talent that had so many things go against them uh, throughout their career. And, uh, you know, for the replacements in Westerberg, it, it's, it's almost as if they had two bites of the apple, you know, throughout their career. And then Paul Westerberg had another chance as a solo artist with big label backing and in an environment that you think would have been uh, receptive to that kind of music, and he still couldn't pull it off, um, and instead saw bands like the Goo Goo Dolls and, and you know, Ryan Adams and Whiskey Town and bands like that who kind of aped his, his style and, 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 his, and his writing go on to some pretty big success. So It's, it's almost... an offense against God that Ryan Adams ended up being bigger <laughs> than the replacements. He completely copped Paul so... Westerberg's shtick. Ryan, it's offense that Ryan Adams. No, Ryan Adams has has actual talent. The Goo Goo Dolls, for crying out loud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay, uh, true. But but actually, fun fact: uh, the Goo Goo Dolls' uh, first studio album, Superstar Car Wash. Paul Westberg wrote one of the songs on that record. It's called "We Are the Normal," and it's easily the best song on the record. So, <laughs> um, so let, let let's go back. Let's dig back to the start. Um, you know, the, even the pre-twin tone era, the formation, the very early years, the. Uh, that era of the band, um, you know, you guys are going to have a, a better insight on this because uh, we should you know, t say a little bit. There's a great uh, uh, book, recent book called Trouble Boys on the replacements that both Mark and, and Jeff have read. I have not because I, I read an earlier oral history called All Over But the Shouting. But Trouble Boys goes so much deeper into who these guys were, kind of how they ended up together and and, and really the the, the truthfully tough lives that they all came from before they got to the replacement. So I don't know if Mark wants to start or, or Jeff, but you know where this band came together. I can well, just sum this up in one word, one sentence. The bassist was 12 years old. Yeah. 12 years old. That's not an exaggeration. When they started the band, Tommy Stinson was 12. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, Trouble Boys is, first of all, it's a magnificent rock biography. I mean, you know, rock biographies are not known for being, you know, fabulous works of journalism, and, and this one really is. I mean, they really do a, a deep dive in there, and, you know, we could talk all day about, you know, their history. But, I mean, the bottom line is this, is that, you know, two of the guys in the band, uh, um, uh, Bob Stinson, guitarist, and Tommy Stinson, his younger brother, the bassist, came from a very broken home. Um, Bob, in particular, was subject to a lot of sexual abuse and other things like that. And, you know, Bob had a lot of drug problems and, and died very young, a heroin addict. Um, but, you know, he had an extremely troubled childhood. Uh, Westerberg is interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, it sounded like he came from, you know, kind of a, you know, 
middle typical-ish middle middle class you know you know minneapolis suburbs kind of a background but it was a kind of a you know real man in the gray flannel suit type of um, uh, situation his dad was kind of a repressed alcoholic um you know he went to some sort of oppressive catholic schools um and uh you know it, it it just you could tell that you know a lot of this sort of you know weighed heavy on him psychically you know songwriters tend to be more sensitive people by you know inclination even though i don't think westerberg showed necessarily you know when, when he wasn't writing songs that he was outwardly a terribly sensitive person in fact quite the opposite mm -hmm. um but yeah um you know it, it's 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 a very interesting in terms of you know how they grew up in this background and and i don't know i mean again it's one of these things where i don't think a lot of younger listeners quite have a sense of you know sort of the pre-internet era you know what it was like to grow up and sort of you know if, and feel that things were like genuinely culturally oppressive coming from sort of a conservative place because it just isn't the case in america anymore where you're going to have like heavily catholic you know neighborhoods and and uh you know repressed alcoholics you know um, parents and stuff like that that you know all that stuff is talked about openly you know back in the day it was really you know kind of a a, a great big secret everybody wandered around with uh, and, and and it did feel very oppressive and, and certainly a lot of punk rock american punk rock was born out of that sort of suburban oppression that i, I don't quite think exists anymore not only that, but you have to pile on top of it the fact that this is all taking place in, in Minnesota and in Minneapolis and its surrounding environs. And even to this day, one of the things that still remains true is that Minnesota is just a weirder place than any of the other 49 <laughs> states of the Union. I've spent a lot of time there. We lived there for a while. really is a bit different. There's just something about the culture. Even now, it hasn't entirely broken down. There's the passive aggression, the complete repression of emotions. Uh, you know, again, you know, in the younger generation and the modern era, it's not quite as bad. But man, there's still some of those cultural hallmarks that show up. And you got to imagine it was way worse for kids growing up in the '70s in like you know Edina or like Golden Valley or the Minneapolis South South Minneapolis. I think is where the band came from. And of course, I think that's probably one of the reasons why so many great punk hardcore originally acts came out of this because they of course the, what is it it's the rebellion against that stifling atmosphere so it's probably no accident that you know not only the replacements but of course Husker Du as well came out of the Twin Cities as well as a lot of other fairly interesting acts Prince for that matter was obviously a, a you know a very intentionally outrageous artist acting out against you know what his milieu is a place that he still preferred to call home rather than any other place in the world but you know, had a background that, that could be very stifling at times, which I guess brings us to that first album, the first part of the replacements career where, what were they? I, I think there's a friend of mine, guy I knew back in the nineties, a music reviewer called Mark Prindle, who called the replacements first album, which is called sorry, ma forgot to take out the trash. He said, this isn't hardcore music. This is fun core music. <laughs> Which is great and is exactly right. Uh, this is hardcore sound, speedy punk music without any of the weird emotional burdens that you normally associate with a group like Husker Du or Black Flag, none of the anger. This is just a bunch of drunken, goofy teenagers bouncing around in the garage or in their parents' basement making incredibly ridiculous, noisy music. And I'll be damned if I don't love this album <laughs> as much as nearly anything else The Replacements did. It, it's a good album, and I, I, you know, I always go back and listen again to uh, the, the albums as we approach uh, as we approach the podcast. I, I like this more than I remembered liking it uh, previously. Uh, it's fast and it's loose. Uh, they play with speed, of course, um, uh, and, and 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 not quite out of control, but on that on that very edge. 
but the songs are, you know, pretty darn good. And it's it's not, um, you know, like you said, it's not hardcore punk. It, it, there are so many just kind of old rock and roll riffs that are played fast. Um, they almost, I was reading, you know, someone was talking about it. They almost have a lot in common with, um, you know, like the Dave Edmonds style, bringing back those old rock and roll riffs and playing them in different ways and playing them fast and loud. Most of the songs here are not even two minutes in length, for goodness sake, but there are real songs here and some hints at perhaps how they would progress. Um, you know, Kick Your Door Down, that's a, that's a real song. Taking a Ride, uh, the first song on the first album is a, is a fully, uh, you know, produced or, you know, it's a full concept. It's an actual song. I'm in Trouble is probably my favorite song on the whole album. It's, it's, it's made, I think, to sound like a very thrown-off kind of kind of album when you when you hear about it, at least the first time. And again, listening back, it's much more than that. And it, it, it is put together um, as professionally these guys could pull off properly at that time. So, I, you know, I, I'm going to disagree here slightly, um, which is to say that I know there's a school of thought out there, basically, that says that, you know, ba- everything that after the replacements joined a major label wasn't very good, you know, relative to the sort of punky spirit of no, know, no, that's silly. let it be. Um, and uh, um, I, I don't think you guys are saying that, but I'm just saying that, like, I know that's a school of thought out there among uh, replacement fans. You know, maybe they'll begrudgingly include Tim in, you know, the, the things that they like. Um which is, you know, so I was never that into the punky stuff here. Like, I, I mean, I think it's fun. I really do. And, 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 I, and I really do appreciate um, uh, a lot of things about uh, um, Sorry Ma in particular, because, for instance, if you were growing up at the time and, you know, you were getting all these punk seven inches and stuff like that, for what this record is in terms of, you know, being like thrown together in an independent record label, I mean, there's kind of some patchwork recording sessions and stuff. So there's some, you know, wildly varying degrees of quality, but a, a much of this record has shockingly good production for a punk mm-hmm. band at this level at mm-hmm. the time. So the songs are very clear. The parts are very clear. And, and there's some actual songwriting talent. I mean, a song like Johnny's Gotta Die has this like vaguely Fleetwood Mac vibe at times that, you know, I think does hint toward what they're doing in the future but i don't think you know if you were listening to this at the time you'd go on to you know listen to this and think oh well this band is clearly going to be great someday um it just it just doesn't speak to me on that level you know i almost think of this era of the replacements as being kind of a separate band until you know you get to let it be i have my copy of the rolling stone record guide from 1980 that i bought from a used bookstore (laughs) when i was 15 years old i still have it with me it's sitting on the shelf here in my office i brought it to work with me and this is in 1981 when it was published so the first and only album they review by the replacements is sorry ma and the 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 one line that they have is they gave it a b plus or you know three stars it's like will we ever hear from this band who knows will we ever hear from this band again who knows? Who cares? Which is <laughs> about the attitude that they brought to the music. But uh, I think there's a lot more in terms of uh, punk 
quality to this record than it initially wants you to think. And I think it's, it's kind of there in the liner notes. If you ever read the liner notes of this, it's just full of like goofy jokes, commentaries on all of the songs written by Paul Westerberg. I think one of them is, uh, you know, kick your door down where he says like, listen, this was written 20 minutes after we recorded it. It's <laughs> <Which is> a, <laughs> a great line and it sounds about right. And, um, and I, I love that attitude. It, it's just surprisingly durable. And, and as Mark says, I went back Again, I listened to it. I had the reissue, but I hadn't pulled it out in a long time. It is surprisingly well produced. It's actually the thing that strikes me the most is Bob Stinson is a real force on this record. You think of him as sort of the weird, drunk, bizarre maniac of the band, the lead guitarist who left, you know, after a lot of erratic behavior and problems. But man, he plays some pretty flaming hot lines on this, and that would actually only increase on their next record, which is kind of a record. It's mm-hmm. an EP, but it may be again one of these these records that I think is hugely underrated called The Replacement Stink. And the problem with The Replacement Stink is that one of its best songs is something I don't know if I can even mention here <laughs> without getting bleeped again and again and again. Um, yeah, let, let's let's not mention it, at least. Yeah. <laughs> it's track two. It's right there on the cover. Um, it's right there on the cover. They just advertise it right off the bat. I'm actually a little more in Mark's camp on the Stink EP, meaning uh, this was... Uh, the the mean nasty punk record. This is this is uh, the, the the true punk record from the early replacements uh, career, and it doesn't right. do as much for me as Sari Ma or, or Hootenanny would would in the follow up. Uh, Kids don't follow. Pretty good tune. Uh, it's the one that uh, Peter Jesperson, who was their manager, begged Twin Tone to release. He <laughs> famously offered. He said, "Look, just do it. I'll, I'll even hand stamp the record jackets." And they actually took him up on that and Peter Jesperson and friends would hand stamp all these record jackets for uh for stink for the, for the EP. Um it, I don't think it's as good as as sorry my it doesn't it doesn't uh, you know the music is not uh it doesn't speak to me as well. It's pretty monochromatic. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Um the one thing I would say is that I really do think that kids don't follow is is the first like replacement song uh that's sort of uh um i don't know it just has a replacements vibe if that makes sense that mm-hmm. would sort of define the band as they would you know go on further and further develop their songwriting skills there's just something about the particular way of uh, the particular changes and the particular you know way that they approach that song that i, I really think is defining for how they're heading forward For me, that song is actually Go, uh, which is one of the last songs on the record. Uh, nothing on this, these albums, these early albums, is longer than like two minutes and 30 <laughs> seconds, which, again, has a virtue. I, I like bands that say what they're going to say and get out of town because it's something I'm incapable of doing. And so Go is one where they slow it down. It's much more movie. You'll see them exploring that further on their next album, which I think is really unrelated. And by the way, the name of the song we're not allowed to say is just F School. And I think you know what the F stands for. But the, the chorus is it's just – it almost sounds like a parody of hardcore because that's the thing. It sounds like they're making fun of the Huskers and of the whole like strict – 
hardcore scene, which is really sincere and like political, and everybody's got like you know everybody's dressed in their black shirt uniforms and they're all straight edges, and they're afraid of the song is F school F school F my school F school F school F my school, and by gosh, if it doesn't come across as a really fun song. <laughs> Not quite Steely, Steely Dan talking about their old school. It's different. <laughs> it's, different kind of feel to well, it. Well, same message delivered in a slightly different way. It's, well, not, if you, it's not quite gaucho level. I'll grant you that. Again, though, if you read Trouble Boys and you, you know, learn about the Catholic high school and stuff that Westberg went to and stuff like that, I, 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 I'm inclined to think that it was more on the sincere side of things. Um, but, but you're right. There's something about the way the replacements did stuff. It just They were incapable of coming off necessarily as scolds the way that, say, their hardcore peers were. And this is where the drunkenness of their early career is still fun. Mm -hmm. They're still so young. Remember, Tommy Stinson's 13 years old in 1982. Um, it still feels like fun, goofy, a bunch of kids having a laugh. Uh, there, there's none of the sense of the wasted talent. They just, you know, they're 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 young, goofy morons who have a sense of humor and don't take themselves too seriously, which is a huge part of why those early records, I think, still hold up. The lack of the self-serious. Like, they're not like Bob Mould, who, like, everything was a life-and-death struggle, every song they played. And, of course, Hooskers made some great music. I'd love to do a show about them sometime. But they're, they're a heavy band. The replacements have this, this lightness. Even as they go speed along a mile a minute, it's light and it's fun. Political Beats is the podcast. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair, our guest this week. Mark Hemingway, senior writer at the Weekly Standard, at Heminator is where to find him on Twitter, talking about The Replacements and full-length album number two, Hootenanny, which uh, I think, Jeff, you were saying in, in your last comment, you find this to be somewhat underrated. I, I, I would agree if there's an underrated uh, disc in the Replacements catalog, it's this one. They still have that manic, restless spirit. There's still a lot of fun coming through, which would kind of uh, um, just eventually peter out from, from the music, the, the, the amount of fun that came through in the music. And they did that so effortlessly on the early albums, and then it, it became much harder for them. But you know, the, the opening track, Hootenanny, has everyone playing the wrong instruments. Uh, uh, I think Paul's playing drums, and uh, Chris Mars is playing guitar. And that was just pretty much, a, a you know, an ad-lib kind of song that ended up being the first track on the album. Color Me Impressed is a Paul Westerberg tune. It's just a perfect pop melody. Uh, and one of the first songs, I think, that would kind of hint at what he'd do later, along with Within Your Reach, which is one that Paul played all the instruments on. Love Lines, a, uh, a song uh, where the text is taken from the personal ad of the city pages in Minneapolis. And here I think, it's, you know, it sounds like it's thrown off. Um, and yet there are outtakes on the expanded edition where you know they were playing with the melody and playing with the lyrics. And it wasn't just uh, sort of this, this thing they, they, they threw off to include on the album. Run It is uh, a, a kind of a remainder from the from the Stink Sorry Mod. It's very fast, uh, apparently based on a true story where Paul and Chris were trying to outrun some cops uh, in, a, in a vehicle and were caught. Chris was arrested, Paul was let go. Uh, but Run It early on the album too. And there's a vulnerability in the songwriting, uh, Paul's songwriting that enters here too in both Color Me and Preston, I think Within Your Reach, that would play big very, very soon. But Hootenanny's a fine, fine album. 
So this record is interesting because, you know, there are some, you know, obviously Color Man Press is, you know, one of the all-time classic replacements tunes. Um, and again, there, you can see they're sort of heading in that direction. But unlike the punkier, you know, earlier records, I should say, I mean, and, and this is still pretty punky, don't get me wrong. You can tell that they're really spreading their wings a bit on here. I mean, uh, songs like Willpower and Buck Hill are, you know, which is it, Buck Hill, which is an instrumental, are, are almost, um, you know, post-punky um, in a way that you wouldn't expect in the replacements. So the Buck Hill is notable because there are some chord changes in there that Westerberg clearly self-plagializes for Kiss Me on the Bus <laughs> uh, on the Tim record. Um, but um, one, the, the one real gem on this song is within, on this album is Within Your Reach. Um, I remember I told you the whole story about discovering the placements and all that stuff. Like, I didn't realize this at the, until I bought my first replacements record, but I'd actually heard Within Your Reach a bunch of times because Within Your Reach was on the Say Anything soundtrack. Um, you know, the Cameron Crowe movie, mm -hmm. Racing the Jukebox Above Your Head or whatever. In Your Eyes, <laughs> Peter Gabriel, John Cusack. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was the song everyone remembers that movie. Within Your Reach was, was very definitely on the soundtrack. And uh, um, I remember being like, you know, really, you know, sort of moved by that song. And the first time I, I whenever I listened to it, I, I so this is back in the days when you were like taping things from friends and all right. of that. Yeah. So like I had the soundtrack and I kind of knew who was on there. You know, I could tell that was a Red Hot Chili Peppers or, or you know, I could tell that uh, um, that was the, the Depeche Mode live version of Stripped. But I didn't know who was doing the Within Your Reach song until I had purchased my first replacements record. And that is this really like the first time you see Paul Westerberg let his guard down and be like, you know, Mr. Sensitive Songwriter. And at the same time, it, it's it's a really interesting song with this like weird abstract but but lo-fi production and it, it's really effective. I'm going to lay my cards down right now, and I'm going to say that Hootenanny is actually one of my two, you know, key albums that I'll be choosing at the end of this this show. Uh, I think this is actually, for interesting reasons, maybe one of the only replacements albums that I think is great from start to finish. Yeah. Uh, it, its big flaw is its first song. Hootenanny is funny, but it's not a song. It's just <laughs> literally them, you know, having a laugh at the expense of their producer who was sitting in the mobile recording them and couldn't see them. And so they recorded this crap track where they had all switched instruments. And then at the end of it, Westerberg is like, yeah, that's it. That's track one of the album, baby. Track one, side one. Uh, and then they had to go with it just to prove the point. But everything else is great, and it is the perfect medium point where you get everything the early replacements were about. Before they went to the major label, before Westerberg really kind of tried to get more elaborate as a songwriter. You have the goofy punk songs. You have the incredible sense of humor. Mr. Worley, that's mm -hmm. one that nobody has mentioned. Mr. Worley is it's just a Beatles parody from the beginning to the end. It starts off. They do this weird guitar version of strawberry fields forever, the introduction. And then they go in straight into a, a really hacked out version of Oh Darling um, off of Abbey road with like, you know, Paul Westerberg just you know, blowing his vocal cords out. Um, but every other song on this album is good. Treatment bound, heyday, love lines. Buck Hill is the one that um, that Mark singled out. It's an instrumental, but it's a great instrumental. It has these very weird chord changes that you had never heard in a replacement song. And the two that I really also, three really, that jump out at me, Color Me Impressed has been talked about by everyone. It's a classic. Everybody at your party, they don't look too 
Within your reach, Mark said everything you need to say about that. But it's willpower that's a real step forward and into a place they never really went again. Willpower sounds like a song off of 154 by Wire, all right? Or it sounds like a, an early Cure post-punk song, something off of you know Faith or 17 Seconds. It doesn't sound like the replacements. And it, it was proof that they were willing to go completely at odds with what the prevailing wisdom of the scene that they were nominally a part of expected them to do. They were willing to take a complete left turn and do a risk. And they came up with an album that is as varied and yet still as light and fun as anything they were ever capable of doing. I love everything about Hootenanny right down to its cover, which is totally pirated <laughs> from like a 1950s Midwestern folk Hootenanny album where mm-hmm. they just, instead of like, you know, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes, they put their song titles on the thing instead. It's, it's the replacements at their funniest, lightest, and most diverse, and it's the one that I think even people who kind of know the rest of the band stuff don't pick up. Please check this one out. Uh, b- before we get to Let It Be and Tim, the next two albums, I, I want to make sure we talk a bit about you know their live shows. Uh, clearly, I don't think any of us saw a a, uh, a live replacement show. There is a, a new uh, live album actually just out called Live at Maxwell's, which is from 86, just after Tim was released, just before Bob Stinson was kicked out. So it's kind of like an artifact from uh, around this era, a year or two later. But the Replacements live shows were famously hit and miss uh, because they were they were drunk all the time. Um, and you got a, a, a brilliant show or you got a drunken sloppy show. And sometimes on purpose. I mean, th- these guys would, would play to a room of record executives and not play a single Replacement song just to sabotage the show. They'd play, play covers for... For 60 minutes. Um, there's a story about uh, they were doing a national radio broadcast. They were opening for someone. I can't remember. And Paul had taught the audience beforehand. After the first song, everyone boo. And so they played, I think, Color Me Impressed. And, um, and and then everyone in the crowd booed. And Paul said, oh, come on. You'd like us if he gave us a chance. He he sabotaged this live national broadcast to, to have fun with 500 people in the room. Uh, but the live shows... Um, were something. Right. But I mean, I think the key to remember here is, is, is the sort of the theme that Jeff was hitting on here before, which is that, you know, when when their live show clicked, boy, did it click. I mean, mm-hmm. the stories people have of good replacement shows are like earth shattering experiences. I mean, they were sort of like that good. You know, they're just the manic energy firing on all cylinders. You know, they just, you know, were a force of nature. Um, so, on some level, I mean, I don't think in the end it quite balanced out. It probably aired more on the side of, you know, ticking people off. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'd say you, know, you had about, you know, a good 25, 30 percent of the time. I mean, they really just, you know, uh, knocked people's socks off. I, I should mention, though, that um, uh, David Harsanyi, who's a regular contributor to National Review and a senior editor at The Federalist, is a huge replacements fan who actually did see them live back in the day a bunch of times. He grew up on Long Island. And I know he specifically told me he saw them at Maxwell's a couple of times. So I wonder if he was uh, at hmm. this particular show that, that they just released. But, you know, he he had basically good things to say about them, you know, even though, you know, the all the stories about them being, you know, drunken mess are also true. 
I've heard about 40 live replacements shows. I have about that many collected. Um, I'm a big fan of shambolic live bands. So like for whatever reason, I have an immense collection of, say, pavement uh, bootlegs and New Order bootlegs. New Order and Joy Division were famously hit and miss as a live act. Um, the replacements make all of them look as smooth and professional as a Britney Spears Las Vegas stage show. <laughs> I have never heard a band that was such an effing mess uh, on literally 35 out of the 40 shows that I have. <laughs> Every one of them has like one song where it seems like maybe they're doing all right. Okay, yeah, this is okay. And then it breaks down and they start playing a country song instead. Um, I am amused by the myth. I am less amused by the reality of it. And I'm disappointed to say that because they could be great that the new album that came out the maxwell's album is probably as good as you'll ever hear them mm -hmm. uh this is actually produced by bob mare uh the guy who uh wrote trouble boys i think he curated he found this set and he produced it wrote the liner notes for it um it's as good as it'll get us is early 1986 it's a little beyond the era that we're in uh, they actually released a live album during their history um again another great name uh called the the hits the fans which is a pretty funny joke at the expense of the audiences that they were doing terrible things to i've listened to it all of three times in my life despite having all these albums because it's just not a good show they're drunk they're mm -hmm. indifferent they play songs for 30 seconds and give up they don't care and it's one of those things where for me the myth is far more compelling than the reality of it and again it gets back to that feeling of why do i sometimes feel resentment and anger towards the wasted talent and potential of these guys because you know it's one thing to hear funny stories about oh they were drunk and they played you know half-assed you know kiss covers all night and then it's another thing to actually listen to it and imagine what it would have been like to go there and pay your money to watch right. these people and it, then it watch should, them disrespect you like that. It, it should be said, though, that um, the general impression, though, is that, you know, after Bob left the band post Tim and they brought in Slim Dunlap, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, nobody would say that they were, you know, Nashville players or anything, uh, but the professionalism did increase substantially. After For sure. Political Beats presentation of National Review. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Mark Hemingway with us this week from the Weekly Standard talking about the replacements. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Find our shows also at nationalreview.com. That brings us to a fantastic album, Let It Be. Yes, just like the Beatles did it. And Paul uh, had said... Uh, it was their way of saying that absolutely nothing is sacred, which if you know the replacements, you know that they believe is true, that uh, the Beatles were just a fine rock and roll band, is how Paul put it. That's why they call it Let It Be. Um, well, I, there's a story in Trouble Boys, as I recall, like they didn't know what to no name the record. So they said they'd name the record of the next song that came on the r radio in the van. <laughs> uh, and I think that's what actually happened. <laughs> Interesting. This is the record that... A lot of their fans think it's the greatest replacements album ever. I think the critical the critical consensus is that it's the greatest record ever. Now, it's not my favorite for personal reasons, but I mean, I would say that 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 could easily be said. It's not it's not my favorite either, and and I wish it were. And I've you know, as we decided we were going to do this show, I went back and I've listened to it like probably five six times mm -hmm. since then. So, 
everything that I had originally thought about this album came back to me, and I, and I remain unchanged that it has some fantastic music. The first song is I Will Dare, which is one of the greatest replacement songs ever. Peter Buck plays the guitar solo. Paul Westerberg on out-of-tune mandolin break, which is just, again, one of those goofy, buck-toothed moments of silliness that just works brilliantly in the context of the song. It captures what it feels like to be like an awkward 17 year old getting your nerve up to ask a girl out especially that girl who's dating the jock at school or the high school quarterback you're like yeah i can make a play for her and i can win her you know oh it's perfect at getting that weird kind of left turns like androgynous which is a piano number about dressing up in women's clothing and putting on makeup which the band was fond of doing at this time unsatisfied 16 blue answering machine these are great songs but no album that has tommy gets his tonsils out a kiss <laughs> cover and gary's got a boner uh can ever be thought of as a truly great record and it just kind of points up that every one of these mid-period albums that a lot of other bands treat as classics sort of get sabotaged with material that isn't working for them anymore okay so i think you're high here jeff um (laughs) i mean seriously like your impression of hootenanny and and let it be are like basically exactly reverse for me i mean i think that hootenanny is like 15 percent brilliance and then you know 85 percent you know very amiable you know punky stuff yeah. This record is basically the exact opposite. It's like 85% total brilliance and then like 15% sort of, you know, Gary's got a boner. Um, so you're a big fan of Tommy getting his tonsils out? Well, I, you know, but I mean, again, I'm including that in sort of the 15%. But like some of the stuff, like I th- think you're being like really hard on. Like I think the Black Diamond cover is actually fantastic, for instance. And I think it's like actually way better than the Kiss original. Um, as well, crazy it is. As it, it is. But I don't know how much that says. Um, but no, having said that, I mean, uh, th- th- there's, there can be no doubt that like a song like Unsatisfied is is just a rock and roll classic. I mean, it's an amazing ballad. Um, yes. um, it, it really is. Uh, and, you know, Answering Machine, again, it's another sort of, you know, it's kind of in the um, same mode as within your reach in terms of it being sort of an unorthodox, you know, let's step outside the box, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. low-fi production song that is just so incredibly heartfelt. I don't know. I um, mean, you know, again, there's a reason why 
whenever they, you know, there was the critical list of 200 greatest rock and roll albums of all time or whatever, Let It Be is always the one at, you know, 187 or whatever. Um, um, and I think that, the, you know, even though, again, like I said, it's not my personal favorite, I totally understand why the critical consensus is, and, and I don't even think it's even close, that this is the best replacements record. I mean, it, around the margins, it has like the best elements of their sort of, you know, scruffy, younger, punky days, but it really is it's a, 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 an album where you get your I Will Dares and your androgynouses and your unsatisfieds and your answering machines, which are just flat out amazing next level songwriting and you cannot be denied. I mean, that that is the album is just a major statement. Like no one listening to the replacements up to this point would have expected they had this record in them. No one. And then and it just comes out of left field. And again, it's one of these things where it's like everything replacements did. It's just this giant happy accent. Like, how are these guys this good? I mean, how are they doing this to me? The simple, the, the short way of putting it is that the, the more that Paul Westerberg evolved as a songwriter and got good at making these important artistic musical statements on those songs that you mentioned, the worse the band as a band dynamic got at playing the goofy, fun, punky stuff. Mm -hmm. And so as long as they tried to balance that, they moved in opposite directions. Hoot Nanny for me is that, that, that kind of happy medium where they can balance both being silly and funny and also having some pretty interesting artistic stabs at greatness. Um, on Let It Be, the great songs are great. The throwaway songs are too pointless. And it gets even worse as we get on to Tim and Please to Meet Me, where the ones that he does to sort of, we still have to rock guys, and so we're going to put these rock songs, become increasingly more and more pointless to the point where I'm just like, this song serves absolutely no purpose. That first shows up on Let It Be. There are great songs on this record. It's a good album, a very good album, but it's not a balanced album. And that is a problem that I have with it. And maybe I'm I, just out on a limb there. You're out on a limb. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I, I think it's pretty darn good. I, I Will Dare might be the best song, uh, you know, that they did. It's it's hard to imagine a song like that not catching the ear and becoming a hit. Of course, it didn't. Um, There's some interesting production uh uh, well, not production, but some interesting things that they did with songs. Both on favorite thing and, and work coming out. There's uh, the section, you know, two thirds of the way in where everything drops out. And in favorite thing, you've got just kind of Tommy's bass kind of bobbing along. Uh, in work coming out, you have these these finger snaps that are that are placed into the mix. And so they're evolving a bit in in terms of how they record their music. Uh, and we'll get to, into this with the next albums. But you know, these replacement albums of this era famously produced pretty poorly. Uh, Let It Be is not a great produced album, but it might be the best sounding record of the era, which is, again, kind of damning with faint praise. Um, you know, I Will Dare sounds like it probably should. Uh, some of the rest of the album is rougher. But, you know, with with Mark, I think Unsatisfied and Answering Machine, uh, along with I Will Dare, you know, three three really pillars that, that hold the album together and hold the album uh, up. Uh, but it's it's a very good album. I would just note, though, that you're you're right about the production in some in 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 in, in, in the main here. Uh, but I would I would also argue here that um, <laughs> the the sort of scruffy production that's still sort of present on Let It Be. Um, it's weird because you're talking about such high quality songs like unsatisfied and stuff like that, that just weren't produced at a level that you'd expect songs that, that well done, that well written to be produced at. And it kind of works if that makes sense. Like, um, you know, you could see, you know, I don't know, like, you know, some bloated singer songwriter of the seventies having done unsatisfied and it just <laughs> wouldn't have had the emotional resonance because it would have been like overproduced with syrupy strings or something like that. Right. 
So, I mean, I, I actually think that the scruffy production kind of works. And like, as we see, as their career goes on, you end up in a situation where you end up with a record like too slick. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, like, like I mentioned early on with don't tell a soul with the, the production just is, it's just way too slick. I mean, Mark uh, is right. The, the, the whole genre of lo-fi existed as a reason. And by the way, was like hugely inspired by these early replacements records for a reason, because as he says, unsatisfied would not have benefited from the Royal treatment. It was exactly the way it should have sounded. I agree with that part. Well, I don't. I don't want them to be produced. I don't want them to be shiny and glossy. I. I it, they were they produced, but recorded. I don't like the way a lot of these songs sound. And it, maybe that's not the production as much as it's the recording of the actual songs. Well, yeah, but you also have to remember that in terms of you know lo-fi in 1983 or whenever or 84, I guess was when Let It Be came out. Uh, you have to remember this was not like an aesthetic choice. Yeah. I mean, this is you know you were recording to two you know if you're lucky to two inch tape, you know with no time in the studio where things are really expensive and you're a punk band and you have no money and this is just what it sounded like because that was the only way you could get your ideas down on tape. You know later on this idea that um, you know people in Brooklyn right now are intentionally choosing to record their you know albums on a you know <laughs> four track cassette player in 2017 is you know kind of absurd when you think about it when they're trying to capture something that just happened to be the way that it was and that uh will bring us to tim the very next album in the replacements catalog this one was uh, their their jump to uh the major label was with uh with tim and again high hopes it would sell they'd find a hit and they didn't but there are so many great songs on this album it's it's probably the one well maybe pleased to meet me but uh the one i grab most often if i want to hear uh, the replacements, um, because you've got hold my life, even just kicking off the song and that line, hold my life until I'm ready to use it. Basically the story of the, of the band through that era, uh, they, they were just messing around for most of the, uh, the eighties, um, kiss me on the bus, lights, charming pop. There's bells, there's hand claps, uh, in kiss me on the bus. It's a beautiful song. Uh, Bastards of Young, uh, Jeff mentioned earlier, it really is one of their greatest songs. And as much as they get, uh, I don't know, crap for the SNL appearance and uh, being drunk and sloshed and changing It was clothes, a good performance. It was a great performance of Bastards of Young, for sure. That The performance of Bastards of Young on, on, on SNL was fantastic, uh, overshadowed by, you know, letting the F word fly on live TV, I guess. But it was a great, great performance. And... Uh, Again, as Jeff mentioned too, the, the big rockers, they really want to rock out, right? Dose of Thunder and and uh, uh, and songs like that, they don't work as well. The 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 loose and freeness of the early days isn't isn't here quite as much anymore. And maybe you guys can can uh, can inform me a bit on this because again, I have not read Trouble Boys, but I, I read a, a review uh, where it had mentioned you know, Bob Stinson was was on this album, but it said that. They basically did this as, as a trio. Bob wasn't all that involved in the recording of Tim. Is that yeah. what you got out of the or out of the yeah. uh, out of the book? Absolutely. They emphasized that 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 uh, most of the recordings were done with just Chris, uh, Paul, and Tommy, and then Bob came in and did his overdubs later. Did a first pass at them, fell down drunk, didn't work. Did a second pass, and it did work. And in fact, people would come up to him and ask him like, "Oh, yeah, how, how's the new replacements album going?" And he's like, "I wouldn't know. I'm not on the effing thing." Because um, he was, you know, obviously at this point really drifting away from the band, it certainly as a recording unit, because he felt like that, that Paul's songwriting was taking over the aesthetic of the group. And he was right about that. And I actually think that that was the right thing to do for the group. My thing about Tim is I think half of it is 
genius, maybe the best the replacements ever got. And then half of it is, you know, you already heard me complain about the sort of goofy rockers on Let It Be. Half of it is worse than that. Uh, Kiss Me on the Bus. Again, this is Paul Westerberg going acoustic, totally taking a far move away from like the hardcore guitar heavy replacement sound. Again, that sort of, I remember riding on the bus on the local bus as a kid and seeing like this cute girl who was like a little older than me and like making eye contact <laughs> with her and saying, Hey, how you doing? And being completely shot down. Remember that. I lived that song. That song speaks so much to my childhood experience that it's impossible not to identify with. Bastards of Young is the single greatest song, I would say, written in the entire American indie scene of the 1980s. That's not an exaggeration. I think Bastards of Young is better than any R.E.M. song or any Husker Du song or any one of their competitors. And it is, if you had to rest the replacements legend on one song, you could rest it on that and it would stand up sturdily. There's also an argument that Bastards of Young is the single greatest music video ever made. <laughs> yes, yes. The music video for Bastards of Young is literally a guy off screen smoking a cigarette. He puts the cigarette into the ashtray. Uh, you hear the sound of a needle dropping on a turntable. And then the song plays and all you see is the speaker, mm -hmm. the subwoofer of the speaker going boom, boom. Boom, boom, to, to the bass notes and the kick drum. And then at the end of it, I think he kicks it in or he yep. destroys it or something like that. And that's it. There's no video at all. It's literally you just watch the song play with nothing happening, which, of course, was the replacement's response to the major label demanding, hey, it's time for you guys yeah. to do a music video. Well, They're like, yeah. all right, you want us to do a music video? F you. What do you think of this as a music video? <laughs> it's a great one. I mean, they didn't but want yeah. to do music videos. They didn't want to play you know, live. They didn't really want to do SNL. It was kind of a, a, a fluke. They said, oh, yeah, if you can get us there, we'll do it. And then they, they figured out a way to, to get it done. Uh, after Tim, and this is part of the, you know, every opportunity that was kind of handed them, they didn't accept any kind of assistance along the way. Hey, we can get you a national thing. No, uh, how about we get you an MTV where bands are broken all the time? Nope, don't think so. We'll, we won't even be in the videos. I think I think the Alex Chilton video is 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 the same way where it's a, it's a video of Paul sitting on a couch. That's the video. Um, that's not the kind of stuff that got airplay too much in the 80s it was you know tom petty alice in wonderland eating a, a woman uh, who, was, who was now a cake that that those are the videos that got played and the replacements right. didn't want to make that kind of stuff right but i it's so speaking of tom petty though it's, it's important to remember that the the replacements um that their last big shot at sort of superstardom was opening up for tom petty i mean the, the tom petty and the heartbreakers were huge fans of the replacements they had immense respect for those guys and yet once again as you know jeff points out like you know they they were insanely frustrating to the heartbreakers on tour you know that they wouldn't be even just that much more professional. Um, you know, in retrospect, Westberg, you know, acknowledges he learned a lot from like, you know, how serious and, and dedicated to his craft that Petty was. Um, but, you know, it's just another one of these things where, you know, as much respect as people had for their songwriting, I mean, like people at the highest levels of rock and roll were like, that is a great band. They still couldn't bring themselves to sort of like live up to any expectations whatsoever. And uh, around this time, we talked about the SNL appearance. Uh, Paul uh, 
uh, was cueing Bob for the guitar solo slightly off mic, dropped uh, an F-bomb, and uh, Lorne Michaels, very upset, banned them for life, though Westerberg would appear again later. They trashed the dressing room. Uh, they trashed their hotel room. They tried to get Harry Dean Stanton drunk before he hosted the show. It did not go uh, according <laughs> to plan. Bob Stinson gets kicked out of the band uh, after Tim is released and after the SNL appearance. Uh, Peter Jesperson, their longtime uh, manager and co-founder of the uh, the label, their original label, Twin Tone, fired around this time as well. There's a lot of upheaval going on here in between Tim and the next album, which would be Pleased to Meet Me. This is one of those eras where it's you usually say like oh, when a band loses a major member <clears throat> when a band loses their their chief cheerleader which is what jesperson was he wasn't just their manager he was right. the guy who believed in them i mean he, he literally when he first heard their their you know first demo from early 1980 he, he owned a record store and he would like insist on playing it for every single person who walked in and say you got to hear this group you got to hear this group they're amazing and he never really you know let that enthusiasm for the replacements dim and he was gone. Usually when a band gets rid of those people, you think, well, this is it. This is when the, the big nosedive happens. I don't think that is the case with Please to Meet Me. I think Please to Meet Me is an album that is as slick and as smooth and as well-produced as anything The Replacements ever did. Well, not quite as so much as, say, Don't Tell a Soul. Um, but it is maybe close to being their best album. I might say this is their best record. And I think it is the only time where there was a truly happy compromise between what, I guess it, you, know, you can't say it was, quote, commercial because it still didn't make a serious dent in the pop charts, although some of the reasons for that were due to unfortunate timing. They mm -hmm. should never have chosen The Ledge as a single. Right. Um, but it, this is the the greatest compromise that could have ever been struck between the original primal energy of the Mats as a band and Westerberg's songwriting that raw talent and a smoother sheen. The classic example of which is Can't Hardly Wait, which is the song that I think most people, if, if they know a replacement song, right. it's probably Can't Hardly Wait. And that's not a bad thing. Sometimes when you say like, oh, the most famous song by a band, I get angry when people, the only thing they know by Procol Harum is a whiter shade of pale. I'm like, there's so much more than a whiter shade of pale. If the only song you know by the replacements is Can't Hardly Wait, you're doing all right. Probably their second best song. I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I agree with everything that Jeff just said. Um, <laughs> um, but, well, broken uh, yeah, clock, and, you know. You know how Jeff has been spinning out all these sort of like, you know, anecdotes in terms of like the feelings and emotions that replacement songs, you know, inspire. They're kind of like sort of these primal experiences, you know, in terms of, you know, um, growing up. Uh, and, uh, and in that respect, you know, Can't Hardly Wait was, you know, notable for inspiring, you know, a, a sort of uh, a well-remembered, although it's not a terribly good movie, um, <laughs> 90s teen comedy. I mean, because yes. that's kind of the thing, you know, that, that, that you sort of, you know, 
there's sort of a vibe there where you you know there's so much like emotion lurking underneath the surface you know for you know Westerberg as a young man that literally like you know an, an entire song feels like a John Hughes movie or something like that <laughs> um, and uh, yeah and, and I think that's part of the reason why I can't hardly wait is 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 the song that, that sort of people remember although Alex Chilton is just a great single um, yes. Peter Buck again played on I think he played the actual mandolin on that rec on that song and I remember Peter Buck uh, reading an interview with him once where he said that you know he really liked that song because among other things it was the best produced songs that, that the replacements probably ever did um and it really is a song that you know i actually have heard it played on the radio um you know when when you know the uh modern rock djs really want to reach deep into their bag um you know and it, it, it's it popped up on jukeboxes and stuff when i was in college because you know, people you know really like that song it really was kind of hilarious because the 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 the, the lyrics are um, um i'm in love what's that song and uh um I remember it seemed like every time I was out with someone, uh, I, uh, there was a bar um, in D.C. actually when I was in my early 20s that had Alex Chilton on the jukebox <laughs> back when they had non-internet jukeboxes. And I would always <laughs> play that song and uh, invariably whoever I was with would turn to me and like, what is this song? This is, this is a fantastic, catchy song. Uh, it was so brilliant to make that the chorus so that's the one line that everybody knows is i'm in love what's that song and that'll but, be like oh yeah i love that song called what's that song but the other thing about it is and again you know we're talking you know layers of irony here the song is alex chilton right who was the you know lead singer of big star who is along with the replacements maybe the other all-time great you know how did they not ever make it story in rock right. and roll right <laughs> and here the replacements are writing a slip pop single about you know uh yet you know another beloved rock star who was acknowledged to be a genius by every other great rock star of his era um but never was able to quite break through um so it's just it's such the song is such a perfect metaphor for the placements yeah. I, I on so many levels i i really like please to meet me and one of the reasons is well i o u for one is it's not bastards of young but i think it is one of the best rock songs that westerberg wrote i o u is a great song and with the departure of just Brissett and, and bob stinson you can read a bit into the lyrics that i o u nothing i want it in writing that sort of thing and, and the lyrics that westerberg is writing on please to meet me there's a lot of self aware type stuff going on i'm on on i o u step right up son going to show you something ain't never been done and then the elongated you're all wrong and i'm right You know, I don't know. One foot in the door, are we going to be a, a, a big success? The other foot in the gutter. Uh, never mind. All over but the shouting, just a waste of time, where the, uh, the Jim Walsh book, the title, comes from. There's, One of there's the things good... that I liked about the Trouble Boys book, and I didn't realize this, is that the, the uh, Westerberg and Tommy Stinson took to calling themselves, you know, the Rolling Stones, used, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger used to be known as the Glimmer Twins. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently Westerberg and Stinson called themselves the Gutter Twins, which I thought was, was a pretty fitting, you know, counterpart to the glamour of the Rolling Stones experience versus the replacements. 
I, I also just want to say that I think The Ledge is an utterly fantastic song. Um, and it's interesting because it's one of the few things the replacements did that has uh, a sort of a dark edge through and through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they always had this sort of like scruffy, bitter sweetness about them. And, and that song is a very sort of dark song. And and Trouble Boys goes on this, tells this long, elaborate story about how that record was doomed because The Ledge was the first song off of the, the record. And it's a song about like teenage suicide. And there was a big national incident involving teenage suicide. And then MTV wouldn't touch it and makes it into this big production. And I'm sorry, I just have to say that like as much as I love that song, I have a hard time imagining that was ever going to be the single that was going to break them. But it really is truly a, a great, great song. It was always obvious that the single should have been Can't Hardly Wait, and they just obviously refused to release it because it was too easy. Again, the replacements <laughs> never took the easy answer. Oh, and uh, this is Political Beats, by the way, presentation of National Review. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Mark Hemingway from the Weekly Standard talking about the replacements. And uh, we, we come to Don't Tell a Soul, which is uh, a big dividing line, I think, in replacements uh, fans love between... Yep. Pleased to meet me, which Jeff would argue, has argued, might be their best to don't tell a soul. I was surprised, uh, listening back, uh, how much I really don't like this album. Um, <laughs> I was actually thought you were going in a different no, direction. No, no, I was surprised how much I, I, I expected to come in and say, well, you know, the production's kind of massive and huge, and uh, but there are some quality. Th- I just, man, th- there's not a lot here to grab hold to. Uh I'll be you, which is the the single. It actually got to number one on the rock uh, on rock radio, not in the Billboard Top 40, but on rock radio, and so uh, that's as big of a hit as they ever had. I'll be you, which is a very good song. Uh, Aching to be is is a good tune, a little country styling, and I think the final song on the album is a departure. It doesn't sound like almost anything else they had been doing around that time, but Darlin' one is a really fine track uh, on "Don't Tell a Soul." Westerberg sings in a way that where he sounds half sedated on a good majority of the album, and he continued that through a good portion of his solo career as well, for goodness sake. Things are overthought. Um, things are even more self-conscious. I, I, I uh, as I said, I, I like this less uh, than I even thought I did, this Don't Tell a Soul album. Tommy Stinson said it's, it's his least favorite thing that The Replacements ever did. I, I think that's kind of the general consensus. And, you know, I mean, I already talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the show. Um, but I mean, and I don't know, maybe it's for personal reasons. Uh, you know, like I said, it was the first replacements record that I ever really had that I, I I think this record gets too bad a rap, although I do think that, you know, it's it's obviously one of their, their worst efforts. I, I am frustrated because, again, I think that, you know, the casual brilliance is still there. I mean, the lyrics on a song like, you know, we'll inherit the earth, but we don't want it, uh, you know, just throw away lines on, you know, asking me lies you know the richer getting richer the poor getting drunk and a black and white picture there's a lot of gray bunk paul, paul westberg can like toss off these kind of like funny <laughs> lines that have like right. totally unexpected resonance you know um uh, and and this is in the lyrics and the songwriting throughout all this record are actually once you get past the like 
over slick gated reverb on the snare too heavy 80s production the bones of the songs are just still really good and it's like you almost wish that they could just go back and like re-record this with like the same production standards as as pleased to meet me or tim and i think people would consider it as great a record uh um uh, not as great or certainly in that league um but it, it it's it's rare to take it, it this is usually it's very hard to take a song that is really good and like ruin it through production whereas you can have fantastic production and you can't rescue a well-written song mm -hmm. I, I mean you can't you can't you can have fantastic production you right. can't rescue a poorly written song this is like one of these rare times where i think the production is actually like so bad and so out of whack to the band's like general instincts and aesthetic it actually ruins great songs uh and it's it is really frustrating ironically enough this is the one producer that paul westerberg decided to work with again um uh this is uh, i think his band was brad wallace or something matt wallace. like that yeah. matt wallace there you go um i'm more in mark's camp on this i thought i hated this album i still don't like it went back and reviewed it for the first time in god knows how many years recently for the show and boy i you know there the songs they're not replacement songs <clears throat> and that's really telling they're Paul Westerberg songs, but a lot of them are really good. Talent Show, I think it's a really good song. That was when I got that old All or Nothing compilation back in the day. I remember thinking, well, you know, the last eight songs on this this uh, best of CD don't really grab me that much. But this one song, uh, that's good. That's good. And I still love that song. It's got it's got some of that, that goofy adolescent aesthetic you know it's about you know people getting nervous to go on stage for a talent show the singer on before me was doing a lip sync and what are we going to do we just learned our instruments very much a metaphor for the replacement's entire career um uh, i'll be you is okay uh, and the ones that really do grab me the most though are the last two uh darlin one which we already talked about i think is, is a pretty good song but rock and roll ghost is i think a really amazing song Again, the problem with it is it's a very confessional song. You know, Westerberg thought the story goes at least that he thought he was writing about Bob, you know, someone like Bob Stinson. But he, he realized at the end as he was writing the lyrics that he was actually writing about himself where he says, you know, I look at the mirror and what do I see? I see a rock and roll ghost. It's a great song. It's not a replacement song. It's a Paul Westerberg solo song. It's an acoustic number. It's very spooky. It's it sort of feels like. It wandered onto this album by accident, although it would have fit very well on the next one, All Shook Down, which isn't necessarily a compliment to All Shook Down, <laughs> at least as a replacement album. No one here to raise a toast. Be my guest, and I will be a host. To a rock and roll ghost. This album has, you know, five or six songs that I really actually do like to hear again. And I think it's also telling that the worst thing on it is the one time they try to go kind of balls to the wall, old school rock music with I Won't, which is one of the most embarrassing songs of the replacement's entire career. And it actually hurt me to listen to again. Uh, I, it's one of those things that I very rarely ever reach for the skip button. <laughs> With that song, I was just like, I got a minute and 50 into it. And I'm like, I, I literally don't ever need to hear this again. I almost never do that. I did that with this. And that's the first time I do that on any replacements album up until this point. 
including like all the goofy, weird, hardcore stuff on, say, sorry, Ma, forgot to take out the trash. That's a telling sign, and I think it was pretty indicative of the band's trajectory from this point onward. Uh, and that would lead us to what is a Paul Westerberg solo album in all but name, as everyone attests, All Shook Down, the final Replacements album, where uh, I think all I think the Replacements, all of them, only play on one track on the entire album at the same time, that is. Um, Merry-Go-Round, I guess, is the, is the single and perhaps the only song that people might know from it. It's, uh, it's a lot of hushed singing and acoustic guitars. It is, again, it sounds like, and it is, a Westerberg solo disc in all but name. And to me, there's not a ton uh, to recommend off this one. You know, I think the adjective here, I would say, is elegaic. Um, you know, this is the band's last gasp. It sounds like the last gasp. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, if you had no knowledge of this band other than that they had put out several albums before, you would probably hear this record and think this is the last thing they're ever going to put out because clearly it was so forced in so many ways. But yet, you know, again, it's one of these things there, you know, where there's just these moments that come out of left field you know you think that you're sort of depressed by this record and other things but there are just these moments that are again that are transcendent and and very sort of replacements-esque but you know again I I think it's again the critical consensus would be after Don't Tell a Soul that this obviously is their their you know their second worst effort on the downside this is the replacements worst album ever on the bright side this is by far the best Paul Westerberg solo album ever um, that is not that's true, a, by the way. Well, okay, you're gonna you're gonna make a <laughs> I'm case gonna make for a case. mono, aren't you? Yes. But I actually think this is a really good album that doesn't feel at all like a replacements album. It's very much of a mopey singer songwriter record, and the best moments on it, by the way, the one replacements track on this, I think, is very underrated. It's called Attitude. Mm-hmm. They all play, and it's not like a nor. It's it feels closer to something you would have heard on Hootenanny than anything else that they had ever you know, done prior to that. Uh, it's a lot of country blues, harmonica. They're playing an acoustic skiffle. It works. It's a really good song, I think. What I think is on the tip of my tongue I let it slip with my attitude You thought was weird Not me, it was my attitude You thought was weird the last is my favorite song on this record though and that is very much a paul westerberg solo song it is the last song on the record the last song on the replacements album career very depressed uh, piano ballad that works works really well but Certainly, when you think about where this band began and then where it ends, which is can you imagine him alone in a room <laughs> with, uh, yeah. you know, you know, a piano, maybe some studio musicians, it's a pretty sad ending uh, for the group, and I guess kind of inevitable given the way that they continue to sabotage themselves throughout their career. I just can you imagine listening to Sorry Ma and then following that right up with All Shook Down and say these are this this is the same band and you know well that's what I said about REM although in a better better sense that Murmur and Automatic for the People hey that's the same band nobody <laughs> changed you know but Pretty this amazing. is the same band in a much sadder sense of the term. Yeah, I don't know though the Automatic for the People I would argue is a legitimately great record, um, uh, whereas uh, you know. <laughs> merry-go-round is just oh i'm sorry all shook down is just uh um, right that's exactly what i mean is like that's a much more triumphant version right, of right, hey, right. this is the same band uh, yeah okay yeah 
And that would be the end of the replacements. Uh, and uh, Tommy Stinson would form a band called Bash and Pop. He'd play in Guns N' Roses for a long time, play in bass. Chris Mars would go to an art career. Uh, pretty successful as far as I know. But Paul Westerberg would continue. He had a major label record deal. Uh, we did a little you know, pre-show work. We do do some pre-show work. Jeff says he has never heard a single note of any Paul Westerberg solo uh, stuff outside of All Shook Down, if you count that. Still huh. true. Still true. But Mark has some thoughts, and I have some thoughts. I have kind of, I, I've mined a lot of the Paul Westerberg solo stuff to find the highlights. Um, and I, I know Mark has some thoughts on the Westerberg solo catalog as well. So you have to remember, like at the time here, the replacements again, you know, even when Aldrich Down was, you know, flaming out or whatever, the replacements still loomed incredibly large. It's just these like legends that, you know, people couldn't stop talking about, you know, among rock critic circles. So when 14 songs, Paul Westerberg's first big solo record came out with, you know, big major label backing and all this other stuff, there were like such high hopes. And, you know, again, it was one of these things where they were like immediately deflated. Um, mm -hmm. There are some just wonderful moments on there like there's a song in there called black eyed susan that is literally like a four track demo that paul threw on the record you want to talk lo-fi um it's such a great little song but you know again it's frustrating because if he you know just bothered to do some kind of version of of full production maybe it would have lost some of the charm but it might have gotten played on the radio or something um and he did all this stuff with like memphis horns that he flirted a little bit with uh on on the the uh um on uh, um, "Please to Meet Me," which was recorded in Memphis, right? Um, uh, as well, but it just it just didn't seem to like you know sort of work. Um, later on, um, he did a record called I don't know how you say it, "Sucane Gratification." That's the way I say it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> interesting thing about the record is that record was produced by freaking Don Was. Yep. I mean, legendary Elton John, Rolling Stones. Don was, you know, um, Don Twiddler to the stars. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Um, and Don was was like begging to work with Paul Westerberg. Yeah. I mean, he was like such a huge Paul Westerberg replacements fan and had been forever. And he's like, you know, let me, you know, take, you know, uh, a stab at making you, um, um, you know, famous. And there's a couple of just absolutely fantastic songs on that record. Um, I cannot remember what the first song in that record is called off of for the life of me. I'd have to look it up. Best but thing that it, never happened is right in that range or no? Uh, no, I don't think that's it. Uh, um, uh, I can't remember, but um, there are some just truly fantastic songs in that record, but it's really like half a record. It just kind of like runs out of yeah. steam at some point. Um, uh, the song is called It's a Wonderful Lie. Okay. Yeah, that's the first track. Uh, yep. A, a play on It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, it's some of Paul Westbrook's best lyrics. It's a, It's a really you know, really wonderful ballad. Um, but again, you know, not even Don was can rescue Paul Westberg <laughs> from sort of self-sabotage. Um, but see, that's, you know, Don was, ahead. Don was just quickly, Don was generally in studio, lets artists be who they are and just tries to, to get the best out of them. And I don't think Paul Westerberg was in any shape at this point of his solo career to be left to his own devices, so to speak, to be, to be told, Hey, just do what you do best. And I'll try to capture it. I mean, that, that was not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's exactly right. What's interesting, though, is that um, Paul, for much of his career, Paul Westberg didn't give a crap in a bad way. Mm -hmm. And 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 through much of his the, the sort of the latter half, I'd say, of his solar career, including through today, he doesn't give a crap in a good way. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, in both cases, 
that means that he hasn't dedicated enough like you know blood sweat and tears into his craft to be as big and successful as an artist as he deserves to be <laughs> unfortunately you know you get all the casual brilliance and the moments of transcendence and things like that but just nothing quite cohesive enough to be the rock god he kind of deserves to be in yeah. terms of his talent but it's also interesting and you know you read interviews with him in the last 10 years and so and you know he's got some health complications as a result of his you know crazy alcohol and drug abuse when he was younger and he put a but screwdriver through his hand for goodness sake yeah uh, his fret hand uh, exactly but but he is happy you know he's he's taking care of his kids i remember like you know he was very involved in you know the later years of his dad's life you know to you know basically took time off to take care of his dad he you know did all these uh you know he just sort of like got himself right you know um and i still hold out hope uh that uh, you know one of these days when paul westenberg is like 63 out of nowhere you know he's gonna <laughs> put out like just this brilliant singer songwriter album that nobody's going to deny and everybody like, well, see see we told you let me let me tell you in case you haven't heard so uh, mark covered very much the first few albums of a solo career very well and there's there's they're not they're not great but after Sue Kane gratification he lost his major labor label deal Westerberg did and he just went he just went home and he wasn't under any pressure to write a hit. He wasn't under any pressure to deliver an album. He went in his basement and recorded a bunch of stuff. And I am here to tell you that Stereo, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's two records, Stereo and then Mono, which you've done, done under, the, under the Grandpa Boy, uh, uh, Nam de Plume. And the Stereo album is, is, a, is a set of low-key, uh, some country-tinged ballads, some sad love songs, some bluesy stuff. Stereo is just about that singer-songwriter album that you're looking for. There are two tremendous tracks on Stereo. One is called Only Lie Worth Telling, which is one of the best, really, is one of the best songs he's ever written, I think. Call me when your eyes are empty and open all night. You lied enough, open wide enough to drive. And then one right toward the end of the album called Let the Bad Times Roll, which is also fantastic. And, and Stereo plays through. It's a very, it's a, it's, it is, it's a heavy emotional album that Westerberg put some, put some blood and sweat to in his basement. But he produced it, you know, there, 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 it's not produced professionally. There's, you know, tape runs out. His, his son makes some noises on one of the tracks. But Stereo is kind of that singer-songwriter. And then they sold these together. I have no idea if they're still sold together anymore, but it, it was Stereo and Mono. And you got this Grandpa Boy album called Mono. And this was the, the rocker. And this is almost the album I think Don't Tell a Soul should have been, in that it's still it's still a heavy rocker, but it's it's got an ear for melody. It's got an ear for what might be actually attractive to radio listeners. Silent Film Star is a track on mono again if 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 the highlight of stereo was only lie worth telling silent film star is great from mono
There's a song called Footsteps. Uh, Let's not belong together. Mono is a, mono is better than stereo. I think mono is just a great, great record. And I don't know if he's ever going to be able to to do exactly what Mark wants <laughs> in in his older age. But if you want to say what's the best Paul Westerberg thing he did. Uh, outside of the replacements, stereo and mono are great places to start. I highly, highly recommend them. And the follow-up, which was kind of leftovers from stereo called Come Feel Me Tremble, is also pretty good. It doesn't reach the same heights, but there are a few songs. One is called Knock It Em Back. It's a drinking song. Um, there's one called Pine Box, which Paul wrote about his dad's experiences in World War II. And you might be able to figure out where Pine Box comes in. It's a, it's a really, really great song. Um, he did a soundtrack for open season, this animated movie, which he pretty much admits yeah. he did because he needed money or he wanted I, the money. I was just about to say that. And there's still a couple of really great yeah. songs on. <laughs> Love You in the Fall is a great track uh, yeah. off of that. And um, and then the most recent thing he did is worth checking out. Uh, he did an album with Juliana Hatfield of the Blake Babies and then, of course, of, of just solo success. And they, they their group was called the I Don't Cares. And it came out maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And there's one track on the album that's worth the price of admission. It's called Whole Lot of Nothing. And uh, there's actually a writing credit on the lyrics he posted to uh, to Facebook that says Maxine Nightingale because the, the rhythm part of it is straight out of Get Right Back where we started from. But the song itself is this weird, I don't want to say weird, but it's uh, the lyrics are, are like about the emptiness of this internet age of music where people can like you, but what does it mean? They're not going to buy your stuff and... It's kind of, you know, it, um, uh, the, the chorus is a whole lot of nothings like me, which basically is a whole lot of what? What people on the internet kind of like me? They're not buying music. It's just an interesting track, and, and it's a killer from a musical standpoint. It's a killer track, too. So check out Whole Lot of Nothing from the I Don't Cares. And I probably have talked too long about Paul Westerberg's solo career, but there are still some real gems. I mean, he's such a talented songwriter from start to finish in his career. And even though uh, the solo career didn't work out commercially, there are still these highlights here and there that are worth checking out. No, actually, Scott, I'm glad you said all that because I, I've made a stab at listening to all of Westerberg's solo stuff. But with, you know, the early disappointments early on and like my like overwhelming affection for the replacements and sort of the 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 genuine like disappointment, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it really is weird how fans of the replacements are so invested in their lack of success. <laughs> um, it's like actually affected how I perceive Paul's solo work. And I, and I really should go back there and review these things much more sort of critically, much more on their own terms. And I think you make a really good case of that because I mean, I made a stab at listening to all these things and, and the shadow of the replacements has loomed so large for me. Yeah. I think that I'm being unfair because I mean, almost anything Westberg does is, is it brilliant on some level. And there's something there to appreciate so i need to go back and listen you too jeff you should you should take a listen <laughs> at least at least parts all right i'll give it a chance i'll give it a chance <laughs> come on let it go i'm i i am the yeah i i'm holding the flame for stereo and and mono i i just i cannot recommend replacements fans to at least check that out and again kind of separate it from what the band was and listen to it as as westerberg the artist just just trying to be who he was at that point in time and i think it'll be well appreciated all right this comes to the tail end of our podcast where we ask all involved to step forward and please tell our listeners what are the two albums from the replacements everybody should own and throughout the career what are five tracks that everyone needs to hear our guest goes first mark hemingway please oh i would say please to meet me and tim 
probably. Um, I, uh, those are, I, I mean, I'm really torn between Tim and let it be, but you know, that ultimately is, is where I sort of land. Um, because Tim was just one of those records for me where I had a cassette copy of Tim. I had REM's eponymous and I had, uh, the Pixies do little and like three or four other tapes that just literally never left my car in high school. Uh, and I did a lot of driving. So, um, yeah, I just, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Tim, but before I go, I just, I just also wanted to share like my favorite replacements anecdote of all time, mm -hmm. which is there was a magazine that you guys probably don't remember went out of business a long time ago, um, called musician. And they're actually kind of a big tastemaker back in the eighties. Uh, um, and anyway, they did a cover in like the late Late, late in 89 or 90 i forget and they put replacements on the cover and there was a headline with something like the most important band of the 1980s the replacements and john bon jovi himself actually wrote a letter to the magazine saying how on earth can these guys be the most important band of the <laughs> 80s when i've never heard of them yeah and <laughs> so guess, pretty much, which, pretty guess much... which band has the boxed set it's not the replacements yeah. <laughs> right. oh so, man and uh in five songs mark Five songs. Oh gosh, that's tough. Okay, Bastards of Young, um, Answering Machine, um, Left of the Dial, Can't Hardly Wait, and Alex Chilton. All right. Uh, I will go and uh, leave Jeff to bat. To, well, not clean up, not fourth, but third in our order. Um, I, I will. Ha I'm going to have to echo uh, Mark's albums. Um, I think it's Tim. Again, the highlights are so high on Tim that it's it's well worth a listen. And pleased to meet me the follow-up. Uh, interesting production. Jim Dickinson, Big Stars producer, is on board. And the songs are still very high quality on, uh, on Pleased to Meet Me. So I think those back-to-back -back still are probably the two ones you should own. Uh, songs, I'm in Trouble from Sorry Ma is, uh, I think, the best track on that album. And it's a, it's a fun look at what was going to come for the replacements, I think, too. Love Lines from Hootenanny. Um... Again, it sounds thrown off, but there was some planning involved, and it's it's uh, part of the loose rock uh, that they were still perfecting at that time. Uh, answering Machine from Let It Be, yeah. Uh, Bastards of Young, it's almost cliche, but Jeff called it the best song of the 80s, and uh, if it's not, it's not that far off. Bastards of Young, heck, go find that SNL performance. And I owe you from Please to Meet Me, one of the other great rock tracks that Paul Westerberg wrote with The Replacements. Check that one out, too. Jeff! All right, I am going to be contrarian and odd and say that my two favorite most important replacements albums are Hootenanny, which finally captures all of the glory, the joy, the fun, the goofiness of their early era, their punk era, as well as the early stabs at maturity that you would see coming to bear on Let It Be and Tim. The second album would be Please to Meet Me, which is the one that everyone else has named. Hey, there's a reason that all three of us have mentioned this record. It's not an accident. Five songs. I agonized about this, tried to think about doing a representative sample, and at the end of the day I said, screw it. I'm going to literally <laughs> just name my five favorite songs. I Will Dare off of Let It Be. It's I Will Dare. It's Peter Buck playing guitar. It's a goofy mandolin solo. It's what every 17-year-old kid who ever wanted to get his courage up to talk to the cute girl he knows in class needed to listen to before he did it. Bastards of Young, best song of the 80s. Kiss Me on the Bus, another one of those things that just will transport you back to a time when you rode the bus and you knew how it felt to look at that girl and start dreaming r ridiculous dreams. Alex Chilton.
Can't Hardly Wait off of Please to Meet Me. Those are my five favorite replacement songs. I could fill out two CDs with the best of this band, even though they never actually made, in my opinion, a perfect album. They had such great potential, such great talent. A lot of it did show up on the records, Mm -hmm. so you can hear it, but they never put out a perfect album. There we go, our look at The Replacements. Mark Hemingway, senior writer at The Weekly Standard, his work at weeklystandard.com, at Haminator on Twitter. Mark, thanks so much for joining us and lending your love of The Replacements. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. And Jeff, we'll talk to you next week with a new guest and a new band. In darn deed. This has been a presentation of National Review. Subscribe to the feed, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, over at nationalreview.com on the podcast's link. Click there, find our podcast, our old episodes, and all the podcasts that National Review has to offer you. Uh, Jeff Blair back next week along with me, Scott Bertram. This has been Political Beats. Political Beats.